0: This show is part of the RetroZap.com podcast network. Hey guys, so as you just heard, Beltway Banthas now has the privilege of joining the RetroZap network. RetroZap is a website that hosts a plethora of creative media, so podcasts, photography, and articles that all cater to the nerd in each of us. We really want to thank Joe for allowing us to be part of such an amazing community. And here at Beltway Banthas, we hope to continue to add to the amazing content and creative mediums that you guys can find on retrozap.com.
1: We'll never find the more wretched hive of scum and villainy.
2: We must be cautious.
0: Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of Beltway Banthas a Star Wars podcast based in the hive of scum and villainy in our very own galaxy, Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Tirso. And I'm Steven. And tonight, we sound like separatists, as we discuss whether Star Wars is a liberal tale, a conservative one, or somewhere in between. We'll be joined later by Mike O'Connor, author of the article that inspired this episode, Sounding Like a Separatist, which you guys can find on RetroZap.com. Stephen,
2: what's been going on in the world of Star Wars recently? Hey Tierso, well, last week was Force Friday. Tons of new toys hit the market. Rogue One promotions really jumped into full swing, and fans all over the country, all over the world, have been picking up new items and and getting excited about Rogue One. Do you have any Star Wars toys yet? I'm actually not much of a toy collector. Um, sure. I do see myself going to the store here pretty soon to get one of the what are they not called bobbleheads? They're 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 Popkins. Pop Vinyls. Pop Vinyls. Yes. What?
0: So there's a series of Pop Vinyl collectibles basically spread like wildfire as a phenomenon that after, you know, movies, books, every different creative yeah. media, they'll create these bobblehead figures. When we go into the Beltway Bantha's office in my room, yeah. <laughs> uh, you, it's, the, it's those things that I have on my shelf. Yeah. So, so
2: that's, that's what they are. Cool. You know, I, I love the one for Krennic. Um, yeah, that, that's definitely something I personally have to have. I have an Emperor Palpatine, um, Popkin. that's called Popkins? You can call them Pop Vinyls. Most people call them, <laughs> if you want to. I was, feel like you, I'm saying something <laughs> offensive to these things. Like, no, no, no. It's not munchkins. offensive. It's almost just, it's kind of like your grandpa trying to talk about something. The Popkins.
0: <laughs> what are these, uh, Pop? Pop vinyls. You no, know, I
2: have a, I have an Emperor Palpatine one that I love. I don't remember where the heck I got it. Maybe it was a Christmas present or a stocking stuffer from a year past. But I really want the Cronic one. I sure. think it will uh, complement him nicely.
0: I myself am a collector of pop vinyls. I I almost have the entire Guardians of the Galaxy set. Uh, I have a limited edition Daredevil. I have Macho Man Randy Savage, and I'm hoping I'm hoping to get a few more Star Wars ones. So I'll definitely be heading out to Target or wherever the crap they sell them, to uh, pick up a Jin Erso one.
2: I'm more into video gaming um, than more forms of collecting. So this week, it's out for people who have season passes, but Star Wars Battlefront is getting its expansion this, uh, this week for all players. It's the Death Star expansion pack. I cannot tell you how excited I am. First of all, the weapons are amazing. They've also added Chewbacca to the game, and they add Bosk. Yes. Um, so that's going to be pretty cool. Um, you play on console, right? I do. I've been, I play pretty heavily.
0: I've been playing a lot of the Bespin DLC. Uh, okay. To be honest, I was fairly disappointed by the Death Star DLC. <laughs> just to be honest. You're on
2: the Death Star DLC already.
0: I, yes. Okay. Uh, has it not been released for PC yet?
2: No, it came out on Monday. Sure. I have not gotten it yet. I'm going to get it this week. Sure. I think what I'm looking forward to is I, I don't need any more maps. I don't need more gameplay modes. I think they have enough. I'm looking forward to the new skins. Uh, actually, sure. Imperial Officer, Death Star Blizzard Gunner, um, a couple a couple other odds and ends here and there. like Actually, good Rebel uniforms mm-hmm. besides Bespin Cloud Guard. Um... <laughs> It just looks like a blue Christmas elf running all over the map. <laughs> not not cool at all. So they actually added Rebel Pilots to it. So yeah. anyways, very excited about that. Um, outside, of, outside of Battlefront DLC, just one thing I wanted to bring up to everybody was we participated in a little bit of a fundraiser last week uh, for Force Friday. I talked to you during my Bantha fodder about James Floyd and the hashtag where Star Wars every day project. Um, This was going to benefit uh, refugees in the Jordan, Amman, Jordan area coming from Iraq, Syria, people who are really fleeing the chaos uh, and horrors in that region. And we asked our listeners to get involved in this project and go toe-to-toe with Coffee with Kenobi to raise some money on Force Friday um, as a force for good and to do something and make a difference in the world. And I am happy to report that our listenership raised over $200-something alongside Coffee with Kenobi, Club Jade, Brews and Blasters, Skywalking Through Neverland, and a couple couple more podcasts. All in all, Force Friday generated $515 to go to the Collateral Repair Project, Um, and this is all being kind of moderated through James Floyd of Club Jade. So I do want to throw out a very specific thank you to some of our listeners who got involved in that and really answered the call. Ari, Cheston, Isaiah, John, Suara, and James. You're all awesome. Force for good. Thank you so much. Um, And also a big thank you to Nick DeCalandria over at Coffee with Kenobi. We had a blast participating with you on this. Um, It was just a lot of fun back and forth. And I think that social media pressure that you can apply to people to kind of up the stakes and have a little bit of fun with a friendly competition um, only generates uh, good for everybody. So thank you all who participated. Absolutely, and every little bit helps, so we
0: really appreciate all you guys who helped out with that. But without further ado, that will bring us to our main topic for today, where we'll be joined by Mike O'Connor. So for today's episode, we have the pleasure of having writer and filmmaker Michael O'Connor with us. Mike, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks for bringing me in, guys. Mike is the author of an article titled, Sounding Like a Separatist, that you guys can find on RetroZap.com. Now, Mike, I just have to say, you did an absolutely fantastic job on this article, and we're going to take the time on today's show to discuss some of the major points you made, Uh, but before we dive into the main topic, Michael, you have many more talents than just writing. Uh, Aside from various forms of art, you actually have a clothing company, so could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah,
1: yeah, so it's called George Shop First, and uh, a couple of friends and myself got together, and... We had seen all the, you know, every time that we read anything about Star Wars, anything about, you know, George Lucas, it's, you know, George Lucas is the Antichrist, George Lucas ruined everybody's childhood, Um, and we just got kind of tired of that, and we're a group of kind of artists and designers and big movie nerds, and we just felt like the guy didn't get the respect he deserved. So we started putting together some designs, and we were having fun (coughs) with it, and we just thought, you know, why don't we put these out there and see if people respond to them, Uh, because we felt like... You know, if we if we felt this way, other people had to feel this way, too. And sure enough, you know, we, we put these designs out there and people are just they're just loving it. Uh, people are coming in and saying, you know, why is every T-shirt design out there something kind of to take the piss out of George Lucas or to trash the prequels? You know, where's the positivity? Where's the fun? Where's that kind of attitude uh, to bring back to the fandom? So So we did that and we've just been. Uh, just having a lot of fun with it, pretty much.
0: Awesome, man! And I see that you're actually repping a George Shop First shirt right now.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm, <laughs> I mean, this is a podcast, so you know, <laughs> nobody else can see it. But yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm wearing I'm wearing one of my favorites, which is the Cantina tee. And the whole gag with George Shop First, I mean, obviously, I don't have to tell your listeners. Uh, everybody knows, you know, the Han Shop First uh, whole controversy. The the joke with George Shop First is that he's holding a camera, <clears throat> so he technically. Right. Shop first. That's that's the gap. I the like gag. it. So we're
0: fun. <laughs> and if you guys want to find any of that merch, you can go to george and support Michael and and all the awesome stuff he's doing. So
2: why don't we just dive right into the topic for today, Steven? What do you have for us? Yeah, so just before we go down this path, which can be a little treacherous, first I just want to lay out, um, not necessarily rules of the road per se, but some things to be considerate of for everybody. Uh, what we are talking about today is incredibly personal, and for very good reason. Um, people's politics and their religion uh, come from their worldview, and that's, that's a combination of nature and nurture. Um, your worldview is not something that people very willingly uh, put on the table for debate and dissection. And so for most normal people, their views are based on strictly their experiences, what they have seen, what they haven't seen, and kind of what they're lacking. Um, You know, My goal today in this conversation is not to convince listeners of my view, so I'm going to be as transparent in my thought process as I can be with folks, and when it comes down to if I think Star Wars means one thing, I'm going to try and share why it's important to me that that is right, because... You know, at the end of the day, when you read over these ideas about the politics of Star Wars, I I keep asking myself, why is it so important to me that I am right? (laughs) And I think that that is, um, I don't know, one of the most convicting things about dealing with this topic. So um, without, you know, delaying this any further, let's dive in. Michael, you wrote a really fantastic and thorough examination um, on RetroZept about Star Wars politics. It's gotten picked up by Newsweek and by Raw Story. And the answer that you came to is that Star Wars is essentially a liberal opus. Tell us why. In if in short, if you can.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's that's the trick. Uh, <laughs> because the the piece ended up being a lot longer than I thought it was going to be. Um, but uh, yeah, it's essentially what I did is is I I went back and I looked at it and um, I looked at it historically and I looked at it uh, from the point of view of. You know, when George Lucas sat down to make these films, you know, where was his head at? Where was the kind of the country's head at? And I went through it and kind of chronologically uh, looked at the progression of events um, where someone like Lucas would have uh, felt that he fit in at the time that he was coming up with the idea for Star Wars. And then taking that all the way through the prequel era... um, And it it just so happened to work out that the two trilogies that he worked on were both during these very transformative times in political uh, history in America, where the country was having a lot of questions about how it wanted to move forward and the kind of direction it wanted to take. And uh, you know, the original Star Wars came out of the entire period where um, you know Nixon uh, had uh, had the whole Watergate scandal, or the Vietnam War. Had really, uh, you know, brought a lot of questions, a lot of tragedy into people's homes. For the first time, people were seeing the effects of war um, on their television sets. It wasn't just, you know, a conflict that was over there that was all heroism and and nobility. We were seeing uh, this this war that, for a lot of people, was um, unjustified. And we were also coming out of uh, the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King and, and John F. Kennedy. Um, People were starting to get cynical. I think the honeymoon with the post World War II era, where everybody was a patriot and everybody felt like America was, you know, righteous and and always in the right. I think that was starting to fade.
2: One, um, when it comes to historical context, I think, and we we'll, we'll start with the author's intent for the original trilogy. One of the things that I get a little bit tripped up on um, is the notion of. It being a liberal or conservative tale, because one, liberal and conservative are like words that change every couple of years, especially on the right. I think I think you see more of a pissing match on the right about what it means to be conservative more than you see on the left. And um, and feel free to correct me if I'm wrong on that. I
1: completely agree with that, and I think that you know, and and one of the reasons that I used um, you know liberal and conservative versus Democrat and Republican, for yeah. instance, is I felt like. The, the definition was a, at least a little bit more uh, you know concrete and stable. It didn't tend to shift and fluctuate quite as much. I mean, the kinds of people that would you know that you would say, okay, these are Democrats now, uh, not the same kind of people that you would say were Democrats you know sixty seventy years ago. Um, you know, the if you just look at where the you know the red and the blue on the map is, yeah. uh, it's it's almost flipped completely. As far as what would have been a Democrat, you know, in the uh, you know, Civil War era versus you know what would be a Democrat now, uh, so yes, I, I, that's one of the that's one of the big problems with trying to you know come up with a definition for any of this because even in the last ten or fifteen years or twenty years, Star Wars has been around now since 1977. Um, it's constantly changing. It's constantly fluctuating. What we are what we're going to use to define these. concepts
2: so with the original trilogy if a republican was president nixon and, and george lucas has been very clear about this um you know whereas he said oh you know palpatine i mean that that is nixon just saying that the that the main villain is a republican president indict conservatism because it seems to me more that he is really going after corruption uh brutality abuse of power and everything that people were pretty frustrated with during the Nixon era, it doesn't seem to me that he was going after in any way conservative ideology. I mean, the Vietnam War uh, was, was first teased under Eisenhower, but it was escalated under Democrats and then inherited and ended by Richard Nixon. And Richard Nixon is looked back on now as one of the most liberal Republicans of the modern era. So I guess I just don't see the original trilogy is being about conservatism or liberalism, but it is about counterculture and, and standing up against things that your government's doing that you don't like.
1: Right. Well, I think, you know, I think there's a few things there. I think if you look historically at, you know, what Nixon was at the time, that was kind of a conservative, uh, that he was a conservative leader for his time. We look back at him now and yes, there were certain things that he did that were, uh, were very liberal. Um, and you're absolutely right as far as the you know the whole idea of the corruption and uh, you know uh, the idea of a leader who has gone past the you know the legal limits of, of what the presidency is supposed to be. And Luke is commenting on that. But I think what, when you look back at those times, you know, and, and I say this in the article, regardless of party affiliation, it really is you know the the counterculture movement of the hippies, for instance. A very, a very left organization. Coming out of World War II, there was this kind of sensibility that to be an American was to be very clean-cut, very straight, um, that everybody was very patriotic, you didn't question your country. And you see that start to break down in the 60s and the 70s, and the leaders of the time, whether they were Republicans or Democrats, we're really reinforcing that status quo from the post World War II era, mm-hmm. and I see that, and I think that what you see with Lucas and with other counterculture people of his time that were on the left were, was them saying, you know, look, this whole facade, this whole you know idea that America is perfect just isn't true, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, you had that with the civil rights movement, you had that with Vietnam. Um, and you had that with with Watergate, big time.
2: When we talk about the hippies, one of my favorite ways to think about politics is generational politics. And you know, you have all of these young kids; they're very idealistic. Um, they want to stand up and do something that's right. And I mean, that's the generation that are now congressmen, now they're senators. Like those are the people who are now running the country. And right. I mean, that's that's the tale of government. That's the tale of societies. You have young people who are all about their ideals and some sort of like rosy and perfect picture. And Hillary Clinton talks a little bit about this, you know, with, you know, being moderate versus being an idealist. But I mean, Hillary Clinton was definitely a radical at one point and now she's viewed as one of the most establishment people in the entire country. And it's It's the
1: tale of star Wars too. You know, I mean the, the whole idea of, you know, a generational uh, shift. And I think you see that when you look at the, when you look at the whole saga, you know, uh, outside of just looking at the original trilogy and you, you bring the prequels in as well that you see how, you know, people are young and idealistic and and uh, and then they end up becoming kind of, you know, the evil that yeah. they thought.
2: Yeah, I and mean, that's, that's the whole notion of uh, how democracies, you know, change and are given away in the prequel trilogy. And so while we're on historical context, I think we've touched a little bit on the original trilogy, the historical context of the prequel trilogy. Now, one of the things that has fascinated me most about this is... That I remember very distinctly when these movies were coming out, the, the sentiment among viewers that this was a, a Bush commentary, particularly in episode three. I remember feeling that, hearing that in the classroom, and that was what people felt. But then you just look at the timing of everything. I mean, it's really divine timing more than design. Al Gore should have been president when this movie, the first movie of the prequel trilogy was coming out. So I almost feel like it's just like this alternate history that happened for the the context of the film where, for all intents and purposes, it would have been Al Gore presiding under, you know, a, a nation struck by terror and trying to strike back in any way that they feel appropriate. But we ended up with Bush, so... Do we feel that this movie, these movies, were written to reflect it, or that they just sort of fell into place?
1: You know, I think it's a little bit of both. I, I think there is something eerily prescient about uh, you know what uh, what the prequels kind of represent and, and how they do fall into place like that. But I also think that if you look at, say, the Phantom Menace, the the emphasis on in that film is really more on the corruption of, you know, corporations and yeah. how corporations are sort of being able to run the government and the, you know, the, the bloat of um, of uh, the, the bureaucracy and of the way that the government works when people don't get along. And I think that's, you know, something that he saw in the Clinton era, really, yeah. where, you know, there was all of this, all of these attempts to bring down uh, Bill Clinton uh, to, you know, get him out of office. And a lot of this was just politics and was, uh, you know, gamesmanship to, to you know, uh, score points rather than really looking at, you know, what was best for the country. So I think the Phantom Menace kind of looks backwards to the Clinton era. I think when you look at Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith, you definitely see, you know, at this point, Bush would have been elected um, and the movement would have been towards uh the iraq war and uh you know the patriot act and things like that and i think uh i think he was kind of writing it as it was happening um kind of seeing the writing on the wall seeing where things were headed and obviously he was using historical uh you know uh precedent he was looking back at you know caesar and hitler and all of these other things but i mean was he writing a you know a story that was saying, "Okay, George Bush is uh, Darth Vader, and and Cheney is the Emperor, and this is what's actually going to happen <laughs> to the country." I mean, did he really believe that Nixon was the Emperor? I, no. I he he wrote the original trilogy after Nixon had left office, um, so he knew that Nixon wasn't you know going to be the dictator of, yeah. of uh, the country and, and turn us into the next Nazi Germany. I think. What he was te- what he was doing was he was writing a cautionary tale based on what he had seen and kind of extrapolating off of that, exaggerating off of that, um, you know, where things could have gone wrong or where things could head if we're not careful. And we don't, as a country, we don't hold our political leaders accountable.
0: Yeah, I think um, George Lucas has always been, uh, if you just look at the way that he writes, he's always been fairly... Exaggerative and observational. So he he pulls from what he sees and kind of makes it up as he goes. Not that that's a bad thing, but I I absolutely agree with with the comment on it being a cautionary tale. But you can totally see... For me, I've always felt that there was a huge commentary on the Patriot Act in Mm -hmm. Episode 3. Mostly because of the way that the emergency powers were given to Palpatine. It feels overtly... Uh, like a commentary to it, but that's mm-hmm. just that's just the way I view it. It almost seems too obvious to me that watching <laughs> it as an adult now, when you watch Palpatine saying, "Well, there's a bad thing that happened. Now I need emergency powers." Whoops, sorry guys. Yeah. Uh, it it seems like it. George Lucas's political opinion shines brighter in that movie,
2: to and me. that's well, with Episode two and three. I think that's why I I've just never looked at it from a liberal conservative point of view because what we're talking about is the politics of fear. And mm-hmm. in the prequels, I mean, what you have, and and, and this lines up with, with Congress exactly after 9-11, everyone was on board for what was happening. And then when it actually came to Iraq in 2002, Democrats did not make up the majority of the vote for the war, but it was enough to help set it over the ledge. I mean, the, these things happen in, in concert with teamwork and, and people coming together around this idea that we're in danger and that we need to subvert the Constitution. And I just look to Padme and Bale and Mon Mothma in the deleted scenes in episode three, where they are deeply concerned about the subversion of the Constitution. And I only I only hear conservatives talk about those issues. Um, and the idea that our founding documents give us a framework to be safe and a prosperous society. So I, I see that in the heroes of those movies. I just view it more as, as, as talking about you know, again, cautionary tales about fear.
1: Well, I, I think the I think the problem uh, that I see, and I, I do agree with with part of that, um, but I, I think I, the problem that I see with that is that, you know, during this time, uh, the, the Bush years, yeah. uh, there was, you know, there was a, a very strong criticism of neoconservative far right kind of a, aggressive strategy in terms of, you know, going into the Middle East. And yes, there were there were establishment Democrats that were. Uh, you know, essentially putting the rubber stamp on uh, movements towards towards allowing all of this to happen. But I think you did see a lot on the left of people saying, "Hey, this is wrong. This is this is not yeah. the direction to go. This doesn't make any sense." So again, I, I think there's you know I think there's a delineation to be made between um, you know what I would argue is you know you, you can look at both parties and you can look at political leaders and you can say, well, you know, this Democrat is awfully hawkish. Uh, this Republican is, you know, more of a dove. Um, you know, you can look at Democrats and Republicans, and that that continues to shift. Uh, but I guess the larger philosophy of liberalism and the larger philosophy of conservatism, I see more uh, kind of a, a stark uh, difference between, you know, the two sides.
2: Totally. Um, and when you mention, like, the far-right and neocons, it, it, it's one, one thing I always like to, to bring up is you know, the political spectrum from the political science perspective is not a line. It's not linear. It's a diamond. Um, You have libertarianism at the top of the diamond, authoritarianism at the bottom, liberalism at the left of the diamond, and conservatism at the right. And you really have the Bush administration and the republic falling into this middle-right category where they're saying it's about freedom and security, but also we're going to lash out and be a state that is looking toward, I guess, like preemptive strikes and being strong. I mean, that is not technically conservatism. It borders on that authoritarian line where you're you're doing a lot more than caring about people's personal freedoms.
1: Right. Well, and, and there's different... It, you're absolutely right. I mean, there. if you really look at the uh, political spectrum, it goes in all different directions. And I would say there's gradations between all of those things as well. You know, and I think the other thing to consider is that when you look at the, the right-wing uh, policies, that, or the conservative policy, I'm sorry, that there are certain things about that that are inherently economical, that are inherently uh, more social, uh, inherently you know more about the military. And you can be a conservative and agree with one of those things or two of those things and not the third. You can sort of pick and choose. It's just like with liberalism, you might have certain... Uh, pet philosophies that that you adhere to, but you don't agree with other parts of the party. So it it's not that if you are a conservative, you believe completely in you know striking first and strong military and doing global housekeeping. But that that has typically been a part of that that party, and and is the kind of thing that when we look at presidential elections and debates, uh, typically the. The right side does take a more hawkish attitude towards how we should quote police the uh, the, the world.
2: I'm gonna jump ahead a little bit and sort of where I wanted to go because that brings me really to traits of the empire and talking about kind of what conservatism means, because I guess if like if liberalism is sort of the 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 crux of the piece, you know, it your piece lays out some really good points and, and ideas about why the empire is more a reflection of conservative politicians and conservative values, um, especially when it comes to the military. So, you know this this portion of the article, I feel like in a couple of ways can be a little obtuse. But I'm really eager to hear your perspective on this because you be, you lay out the idea of of Han being tortured <laughs> and torture of captives, um, mm-hmm. open carry on Tatooine, and like really crazy military spending and preemptive strikes. As all being on the doorstep of conservatism, do you like embrace that as legitimate ties, or is that kind of like a mental exercise on your part to to make those connections?
1: Well, I think that you know, again, it's it's when you look historically at, say, you know, the war on terror, for for instance, and you see the the arguments made in favor by um, you know by the right for torture. Mm-hmm. Um, or for, you know, going into a country that hasn't attacked us and taking out a leader like uh, Saddam Hussein that could potentially pose a threat to us. Um, I, I think that you see, if you look at that, I, I, I think that you can see potential uh, mirroring or carryovers with the empire. And I think that you also see that with the Vietnam War in terms of, you know, going into some place and... You know the the whole reasoning behind that as being kind of a, I mean I, I don't want to get into all the reasoning behind the Vietnam yeah, War because yeah. that is, uh, you know we could have that could be a whole debate right there. Uh, <laughs> we might as well talk about the whole reasoning you know for the Civil War. Um, <laughs> right. But you know what was the noble uh, cause going into that war? What was the noble cause going into the Iraq War? Um, you know the World War Two is a very clear delineation of we had been attacked. Um, you know, our allies were being destroyed overseas. You know, it's it's easy to romanticize World War II. Yeah. I think it's much more difficult to do so with the Iraq War uh, and with the Vietnam War. And I think that the cheerleading that has gone on on the side of the right for some of these conflicts, I'm not saying that it is the Empire. I'm not saying that conservatives are the Empire or that America be- has become the Empire. Again, I think that the Star Wars series is really... A cautionary tale of, you know, of if we keep doing this kind of thing, if we keep, you know, saying that torture is okay or that uh, that, uh, we can go into countries and and clean house, that is potentially leading to the dark side of the force. That is potentially bringing us closer to a country that no longer is about the values of justice and, and freedom and and all of yeah. these things that, that both sides of the aisle like to, to talk about, but it's starting to become a very violent, a very aggressive nation um, that doesn't represent what we stand for, what those values are that are in the Constitution and in the uh, Declaration of Independence.
2: Yeah, I think when, when you talk about specifically like preemptive strikes and torture, I think it, it really shows how out of whack I think the political spectrum has become in that, you know, again, torture is not. And I guess extreme measures is not a conservative value; it's a strongman value. You see this in in dictatorships. You see this in Russia. You see this um, with Donald Trump, like endorsing these crazy ideas uh, around violence. But at the same time, you have this incredible distaste for the iraq war um and i mean he's he's called george w bush a criminal for like right. what went on with iraq i mean it's just this this incredible like rearview mirror action where none of the the typical ways we think about the left and the right really makes sense anymore um especially I, in, in the context of that election but um, i mean
1: I, I, I just want to interrupt for a second yeah. Yeah, i, I <laughs> this i mean I, I don't think that you can call you know, Donald Trump a conservative. I mean, I... I, I wouldn't even. <laughs> no, I've said either. a lot of, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm, obviously, I've got my biases and, and whatnot, uh, but... Uh, don't wait. You know, I, I, I would never pin Donald Trump on conservatism. I, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to put you guys into, into, that, uh, into that category.
2: Yeah. That's very nice. I think... Um, <laughs> that's so nice of you. So, like, I did, for, like, the sake of fun, I, I wanted to bring up the idea of gun control. So, Mm -hmm. you mentioned um, everyone's got a blaster in Star Wars, so clearly the Empire is not about gun control. Is there evidence for that? Because all we've really seen for the Empire, and I'm thinking movies, and and there maybe there's something in the new canon or the television series that shows us differently, but I cannot imagine that a citizen of Coruscant is allowed to have a blaster, but I think Tatooine is a little bit different. That's like the Wild West in a lot of ways. I mean, do y'all think that you're able to have a blaster in the Empire in the core.
1: Well, i, I mean, I'll—I'll I'll be honest. I was being a little facetious. Really, more what I was doing when I was talking about everybody and their and their, you know, their mothers packing blaster heat. Yeah. Is I was <laughs> I was uh, speaking to the whole idea, you know, that the Empire often gets by those on the right. You know, people say, "Well, the Empire is actually a liberal uh, nightmare." And really, what I was saying was not necessarily that everything in the Empire is is a conservative thing. But that there's certainly nothing about it that would be liberal, um, and so I was talking about you know the fact that yeah you know Han Solo can walk around open carry with a blaster on him uh, you know clearly uh, you know the Empire is not uh, heavy into uh, into gun control when you know everybody's walking around with with blasters and shooting each other and it's the Wild West again um, you know a liberal government would would uh, would not let that happen you know uh, so I. <laughs> You know, and the same, the same point about, you know, is, you know, is this dictatorship, I mean, this dictatorship is not necessarily inherently conservative or inherently liberal, but what I was arguing against was the assertion by some on the right that, you know, that the empire represented, you know, uh, big government, uh, you know, kind of gone out of control
2: yeah. and
1: that, uh, you know, that, that the liberal big government could become the empire and i just don't see that given how militant the empire is the right routinely criticizes those on the left for defunding the military or for arguing against torture for promoting going out and uh, talking with other nations rather than yeah. you know invading them right away
2: this is i mean this is a really interesting crux of this entire topic and and the idea that the empire is some embodiment of big government. is one of those kind of tropey things that people in certain circles will always say. But it really just comes down to that we we absolutely demonize the other the other side of the aisle. I mean, it it that's what it really is about. We really think that the uh, people on the other side of the aisle are trying to create their own little empire and. At each side of the political spectrum, again, I guess that's the linear perspective, though, but each side is is capable of going towards authoritarianism. You can be liberal and still end up with Stalinism. And that is that is part of the idea of collectivism versus individuality.
1: I want to add in here that I think that, you know, when we talk about liberalism, or we talk about conservatism, these are ideals, right? These yeah. are philosophies. Um, we haven't had necessarily a leader that I would say completely epitomize, you know, either one of those those things, at least to my satisfaction. Um, you know, when we look at Democratic leaders, they have, in many instances, have very hawkish kinds of sensibilities. When we look at Republican leaders, you know, they're not necessarily always into. They talk about small government, but. Governments grow under under republic leaders, under apparently conservative leaders. Yeah. I mean, Ronald Reagan. The government was huge under Ronald Reagan. You know, like the, it's, de- it's the not debt, the like, It's not out. like it was a tiny government or anything. Um, the whole idea of you know conservatism and liberalism is that these are ideals that that both sides you know reach towards, but at some point you have to make compromises. At some point, you know, there are conflicts that require you to dip into the other into the other philosophies playbook. Um, And I think that's a good thing. I don't think that, you know, there is a complete uh, white and black on any of these issues. I think there are shades of gray,
2: absolutely. Totally. And I I mean, that's why, basically, I don't, I never have thought of Star Wars as some sort of conservative tale, but it it basically, to me, is just a tale about the government and the governed and the relationship between those two entities and that it can always ebb and flow in these weird ways because you very accurately point out that under Republican administrations like the past three, government has only grown because that's what government does. It right. just it just grows. You don't ever and I this is in Star Wars somewhere, I don't know, but you give someone power, they don't ever give it back to you. Um, yes. you know that entire mm-hmm. notion and, mm-hmm. and that's how the government functions, you know, military spending is this this wonderful topic that I think gets kicked around um, by the left and the right as political rhetoric, but military spending skyrocketed after 9-11, um, you know, and it did not decline until 2010. And that happened with a Republican Congress, and then it declined again in 2013 during the sequester under Republican Congress. But if you want to look at it as who's in the White House, you would just say, oh, well, there's a Democrat in the White House. Clearly he cut funding, but no, it was Republican congressmen. And then under the Bush administration you had a Democratic Congress with a Republican president and these things just still grow and then they shrink at different times when it's politically convenient it's, it's and I guess maybe that goes back to military contractors and lobbyists <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and who's yeah. who's like who's out there pushing for military contracts and bigger checks but you know government is this this entity that if you don't keep it in check if you if you close your eyes you don't go out and vote They'll take they'll take away your rights, and we've seen that throughout the course of American history. That if we don't challenge the government, uh, and look at the civil rights movement, if you don't challenge them, you will not get your rights that you're guaranteed um, in in the compact of this country. Um, and I I guess that's just that's kind of the way I've always seen it. Yeah, no,
1: I, I don't disagree with that, and I think you know again it's it's these are these are ideas, you know these are uh, you know, these are things to, to live up to or, or you know, but at the end of the day, um, you know, we have to look at things beyond just the very kind of rote philosophies. We everyone every once in a while we have to see, well, wait, this just doesn't make sense for our country. You know, we have to be we have to be willing to call people on uh, on an idea that's a bad idea.
2: One of the other really fascinating topics, and I was really impressed that you got to this in in your piece because I was kind of reading through and I was like, oh well, Star Wars is individualist, and then I got to the next paragraph and it was, oh, it's the Han Solo story, and it just showed me again how thorough you were in covering your bases on this idea. So why do you think Star Wars messages against individualism and more towards the collectivist ideal?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think this is this is a big thing, and this is something that uh, you know because I've had a lot of um, you know people reach out to me after. And, and I want to say that you know I, I wrote this piece, and um, you know I was expecting to get some blowback from it. I was expecting people to be angry with me about it, um, <laughs> and and to really get into some into some ugly arguments. And I want to just absolutely tell everybody uh, that. That hasn't happened, and maybe after this it will. Maybe I said something during this that will really set somebody off, but uh, I hope not. Because so far, <laughs> no, no, we're all good here. Yeah, no. Well, so far the the discourse has been has been extremely civil. That's great. And I've had people I've had people on the right come to me and you know give me their their two cents and their feedback. Um, and it's been great. You know, and and one of the things that I I when I wrote when I wrote this piece, I said, well, you know, the, the main thing that people are going to say is because I know that there's a lot of fans of Star Wars that are libertarians. And the libertarian kind of philosophy, it's very much about, you know, the, the individual uh, going against a, a government that is oppressive to them. And I think that is, is something that definitely appeals to people in Star Wars. And I think it's something that appeals to people in storytelling in general. We like this idea. We like this, this whole concept of, you know, the one against the many, the yeah. individual against everybody else who's coming down on them. Um, I mean it's you know, when you look back at the whole idea of uh you know suspense and 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 great storytelling in like an Alfred Hitchcock movie, it's all about the guy who's you know, he's not actually guilty, but everybody thinks he is. And so he's gotta <laughs> you know he's he's gotta fight off everybody to get to the end. Yeah. So this is this is something that's that's very big in storytelling and I think it's very big as a political kind of concept. I think in Star Wars though, what's really interesting is that they make a very... Uh, George Lucas makes a very uh, big point about uh, that, that Star Wars isn't just about one person. It is about these, this organization. It is about these people that meet that at first don't get along well together. They, they come from all different places. You know, there's a farm boy, there's a cynical smuggler, uh, there's a princess, uh, and then there's all of these other rebels, these different aliens... Uh, and they all manage to come together, and they all come from completely different places, have completely different ideas, uh, but they manage to somehow work together and and you know fight off the empire and succeed. And I think that's really the story of us. It's not the story of me. It's not the story of I. Um, and I think that's the big thing with when you look at individualism versus collectivism.
2: Yeah.
1: The idea in individualism being that I can make my own way. Uh, you know, I can decide what's in the best interest of myself and I can can make it on my own. And I think collectivism says, you know, look, we need other people. We need to bring in other folks. Um, We all have to kind of pitch in. We all have to help decide what kind of a, you know, society we want to live in and that when one person goes off and just does their own thing – uh, that leaves other people out in the cold. This is obviously a balance. you go all all one uh, way or you go all the other way and and nothing works. Uh, you have to have some sort of a balance between those two things but I think Star Wars really promotes the more so than the other way I think it really promotes the idea of of a community and of people coming together and and working all
0: towards a common purpose and you could you could also argue that the prequels are could also be a overt message about, the dangers of individualism, being that Anakin was a very, very much so relied on what he wanted and what he believed was best for everyone, and that ultimately led to his demise. So you could say it's almost like a, a cautionary tale of individualism for the prequels.
1: It, it, absolutely, and that's—I mean—that's really the whole, the whole crux of Anakin's story is his, is his—you know—and I'm not going to say that individualists are necessarily greedy, but the that. That when you get into what's important to you is is more important than everybody else. Um, when you start to go down that road, uh, and it is, to a certain extent, it's true. You are more important than everybody else. But when you get to a certain point at that, uh, that's where things start to get, that's where you start to to dip into greed. That's where the shadow of greed comes in. And so my whole point with the Han Solo thing is that he starts off, I mean, his last name is Solo. You know, his last, his, his, his philosophy is, it's all me, I don't care about anybody else, I'm only in this for the money. And by the end of the, the trilogy, you know, he has flipped completely on that. He's ready to, to give his, you know, he's ready to, to hand off his the, the woman that he loves to Luke, uh, not knowing, of course, that, you know, they're siblings. And he, <laughs> you know, lends his most prized possession, the Millennium Falcon, back to Lando Calrissian, Uh, you know, he's not happy about it, but he does it, you know, and you can tell in that scene that he's not, he's not, you know, he's, he's more worried about the Millennium Falcon than he's worried about Lando, but he does it because he's learned that, you know, you, you help out your friends, you know, you do things without any thought of reward. And things come back to
2: you. Han's just uh, a big, uh, big gushy guy in the middle. He's he's all about the hugs okay. and the feels. He just has to find that out about himself. I want to stick up just a little bit for the idea of in- individualism in Star Wars here. You know, this is this is one of my favorite points of the whole series. But I think I think one thing I ha- I picked out in this was individualism does not mean that you don't have friends and act with other people and find things that you can unite around. I mean, if you look at the farm boy, the smuggler, the politician, and the wealthy financiers of the Rebel Alliance, I mean, I just think American Revolution, like, just because people unite around an idea together, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're engaged in collectivism. Um, You can have mutually agreed upon compacts between people who have aligned goals, and they have to make compromises with each other, but it's something that they do together, and they come to those points together. The us philosophy of collectivism as a positive thing i've always viewed as a fallacy you have collectivism really only succeeds in its purest form through coercion because you're never going to have everybody come around to something and so i mean what if han hadn't given lando his millen the millennium falcon but he's part of the rebel alliance collectivism would have been you signed up for this and mon Matha comes down and says hey you're sharing the Falcon because you're part of this team. He made that choice. And I, I believe very strongly in that choice that he gets to make, particularly as a character, because again, like at the end of the day, if someone won't come around to something, collectivism requires you to get them along. And Anakin, I mean, so they should be made to, (laughs) you know, what he says in episode two. And that's sort of the, the far pole of where you can go with this idea Han makes choices for himself and and people make choices for themselves all the time for good. That's charity. That's donation.
1: No, I I think that's a great point. And I think, you know, the the whole idea is that, like I said, either side can go to extremes. You know, either side can become, uh, it can be either that individualism becomes all about, you know, uh, all about me and, you know, I don't need to pay taxes, um, you know, I don't need to pitch in, uh, I'm using the same roads, I'm using the same infrastructure as everybody else, but, you know, if, if federal aid comes to, to me because a hurricane blows down my house, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm still going to take that aid, but yeah. I didn't, I didn't pitch in, I'm still going to use the same infrastructure, but I didn't pitch in, um, but you're right, on the other side, that you can, you can say, well, the, the whole idea with, with Han or with, uh, the rebellion, as being shown that, you know, they're not they're not coming in and demanding that, you know, Han do this, or that he go back at the end of A New Hope and help out Luke. I mean, he comes to these decisions on his own, but I think that it's the spirit of the thing. It really is about, you know, are you for yourself, or are you for others? And can you be for yourself, but still every once in a while be willing to make a sacrifice to help out other people? And I think that when we look too, when we argue too strongly for individualism, I think that the the problem there is that we are enforcing that whole idea that, uh, you know, conservative idealism of greed is good. Um, that, you know, and I just think that's a fallacy. I, I don't think greed is good. We have to be willing to, you know, kind of pitch in and, and you know, uh, assist those folks when, you know, need our assistance.
2: But greed is good did come from a fictional character. (laughs)
1: That's that's not that's not a
2: thing that anybody has ever said by you
1: know by by many on the by many on the right as being uh, as as being a you know as being a slogan. Uh, who says?
2: And, who says that? Who says greed is good?
1: Well, it was. Uh, it was in Wall Street. It was uh, Gecko. That was the Yeah,
2: I know. He said it. But who,
1: oh, you mean, Who's, who's taken that as a good I, thing? I feel like it was. I feel like I've definitely heard it. You know, a couple of um, presidential uh, candidates in the in the past have have maybe you know let that one slip out, or uh, some some Republican senators
0: whatnot. And I think it's not so much as important for it being said, but having it be represented. Um, and you know in the things that you support the you know the ways that you go about looking at other people, things like that, I think greed is good would probably be more lived out than said in in
2: most political situations absolutely well, I think that I mean something that we I think we all pretty clearly agree on here, which and this could be towards the greed is good angle um, corporatism and mm-hmm. corporations role in government. the prequels are. Very heavy on this point, and I think it's definitely something worth going into a little bit. With the Trade Federation, you see the clearest embodiment that you could possibly see about a company having a vote in a democratic body. Um, we talk a whole lot about politicians being bought or slapping a chevron sticker on a congressman because that's who their biggest donor is. But in, yeah. in Star Wars, George Lucas is telling us very clear about what he thinks about corporatism and that, no, um, companies are not people. Um, and he has the Trade Federation in there who have representation in Congress. And then by the time the Clone Wars come around, they're financing the separatist movement, mm-hmm. while also still being represented in the Republic. It's, it's insane. But I think we all resonate very strongly with the idea that that is the reality that we live in.
1: Absolutely, yeah. And, and I think that's the, you know, a lot of people look to the, those Senate scenes in the Trade Federation and, and they criticize the prequels for that, and I'm, I'm just kind of gobsmacked because the whole, the whole point of those things is how absurd it is and how ridiculous it is and yet the fact that it is completely representative of our current political system. Yeah. I mean, you know, people say, well, that's not realistic or that doesn't make any sense, and, and that's the point. Uh, you know, <laughs> the Trade Federation should not be able to come into the Senate and be able to vote on something uh, because it's in their best interest, because, you know, a corporation is always going to look out for, uh, for profits. They're always going to look out for, you know, what's in the best interest of... Uh, the, the shareholders—they don't care about you know the airbags aren't working in their cars or if uh, you know if if women em- employees are being paid less than men. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's all about well, what's going to make what's going to make money, and I think you see that with the trade federation, you see that with the separatist movement, and the way that Palpatine essentially stirs them into a frenzy. You know, he he goes to them, and you know, as Darth Sidious. He says look you guys are being you guys are being screwed by the uh, the, the the government you can't let yourselves get pushed around like this you got to fight back you know and then meanwhile as Palpatine he's the one that's screwing them he's the one he's you know putting uh levying taxes at them and uh <laughs> causing them to you know to to want to blockade you know his planet Naboo you know he's using that that whole greed against them uh and I think that's the I think that's the main lesson that you get. I think especially I think he, Lucas hits it especially hard in in the Phantom Menace.
2: You know this with greed in Congress and lobbyists and financial um, interests being represented on the Hill. I think there there are two things. So you have the Supreme Court ruling um, Citizens United, um, which is basically opened the floodgates for outside contributions. Um, to elections and the creation of super PACs and all this crazy stuff um, where people can engage in electioneering, but you also just have standard lobbying. With the Trade Federation and the Techno Union and the Commerce Guild, I, why did they join the separatist movement? It, you had mentioned that Palpatine as Sidious went and kind of got them all riled up to go and, and defect and go their own way. Was it really about trying to live in a tax-free like status? Was that kind of what that was about there?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it's something like that. I think that, you know, obviously the, when you, when you look at episode two and you look at the separatists, that is slightly different than, um, with the trade federation. And he's got, you know, he's got Dooku essentially riling them up uh, then, um, rather than, uh, you know, rather than Cities himself, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think I think that's essentially the the point that that Lucas was trying to get at was that um, these corporations recognize that in the Star Wars prequels that they have these enormous armies. I mean, they have these security forces. Um, the Republic has no army; it has no way of enforcing them to to do what it wants, and the Trade Federation has gotten out of, you know, they, they were too big to fail. You know, the, they invaded a, an entire planet.
2: And they got um, off scot-free. And, and they got away
1: scot-free, you know? Like, Newt Gunray went through all those trials, and it didn't matter. He he wasn't, you know, he didn't have any, uh, any, any jail time. He wasn't doing any time. He's, he's still sitting in his... In his throne, in his spider throne, you know. Uh, I think the the whole point of the separatists is is they see an in. You know, it's it's just like any corporation. If they see a way to make money and they see a way to save money, um, and they see, hey, these guys over here, the trade federation, they got away with it. We can get away with it.
2: People are incredibly frustrated with that entire idea. Um, and this is where one of the only areas where I've ever given credit to the rise of trump is that something has happened in the republican party base where their number one rallying cry besides the wall is that he has not been bought people are really frustrated by this Mm -hmm. um since since the beginning of his campaign if that if when the polling comes out on why people support him it's because he cannot be bought he's got his own money and that he is not representing um, special interests. This is a really important issue to Americans, and it, it's still stunning to me that Citizens United has not gotten a fair challenge, because the American people are not on board uh, with the idea that corporations and companies should have that much representation.
1: I, I completely agree, you know, but I mean, it was, you know, the whole Citizens United thing, it was, it, as far as the, the Supreme Court, the way that it the vote went down it was right wing versus left wing, or, or liberal versus conservative mm-hmm. votes that decided that. Yeah, and I think that I, I think that there's an element in the conservative philosophy that says you know we don't we don't interfere with business, we don't interfere with uh, these corporations because uh, it's not the government's place to get involved with that.
2: And I think that's absolutely true, Michael. And I that that is a a reality. And to to a certain extent, I do subscribe to that idea because the the view that a company does not need government to make the best product that it possibly can resonates with me, but in, in practice it does not always happen. I think the airbags example is actually a pretty good one. Today, a lot of people in the conservative thought space would say, well, obviously if your airbags aren't working, then customers won't buy it, and then you know your company goes under. That's free market values. Um, but in practice, that isn't what happened with car safety. It took lawsuit upon lawsuit upon lawsuit. Um, so, <laughs> you know, these, yeah. th- these things don't always work out the way that ideologies are supposed to actually, um, I guess, subscribe to with the Empire and the end of the prequels. This is something that I've, I've harped on a little bit, but I wanted to throw in here. The Empire was founded really with the bloodshed of the separatist movement and the financial interests backing it. I think a whole lot about how Palpatine used the financial interests to spur on this war, and then he sent in Anakin to execute them all, and then the Empire absorbed their business. It nationalized commerce. There's this great deleted scene from A New Hope where Biggs is talking to Luke, about why, he sh- why he's joining the empire or the, the rebellion and why Luke probably should consider it too. Yeah. And he says to Biggs, uh, what good is all the work your uncle or, I'm sorry he says to Luke what good is all your uncle's work if the Empire takes it over? You know they've already started to nationalize commerce in the central systems. It won't be long before your uncle is just a tenant slaving for the Empire. And that, I mean, that, is, that is the road to serfdom. That's communism, that's the Soviet Union, China and Venezuela. And if you just sort of think about what the far ends again of this are, I don't see anything noble about the way that the Empire um, removed the role of financial interests uh, at the end of the Clone Wars. It was not good for people. In a lot of ways, I've always thought about companies and, and private business in that way as like a challenge to government. You have a group of financial interests and people who are not happy with the way their public works. So they take their toys and go play somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And then in a lot of ways, because Palpatine is working both sides, he creates war. There wouldn't have been war. It would have just been secession. Mm-hmm. And so, again, it's not. I don't always think about it as like, The separatists wanted to actually take their toys elsewhere and then start a war over wanting to escape taxes. Palpatine is working this situation to make sure that he gets the outcome he wants, which is a dictatorship in which no one can challenge him, including these makers of droids. Um, You couldn't have a droid manufacturer who who does private work in the empire because that's a threat to his rule. Um, These things can swing so far out of control where if you remove private industry remove finan- financial institutions and just make everything run by the government, you don't get a good outcome there either.
1: Oh no, and and I completely agree. And and that's why, you know, I'm I'm by no means advocating, I don't think I don't think liberalism advocates, you know, towards uh, you know there not being any private companies. It's it's all about just regulation. It's all about and and obviously there are gradations of that. You know, how much do we want to regulate? How much do we want to to uh, you know, enforce rules. Um, a private organization is going to look for every loophole that they can, and that's their right, and it's the government's right to, to keep them in check. It's all about a balance uh, between government and, and private business. And I think that the danger comes when you know, when government uh, takes over too much, over-regulates, uh, but there's also a danger in under-regulating. And we saw that obviously in our own country with the housing, the housing bust, the housing crisis. Yeah, uh, where you know the, the government just said, "Hey, do whatever you guys want to do. You know, it's cool with us. You're making money. You know, have fun." And and, and we saw where that led. Um, well, it you know, was
2: a, also a combination. There, they had mandates on what, how many people had to be given loans on an annual basis, and what the percentage of those loans would be. There was government ruling on how people had to do loans. And so basically to meet certain quotas and certain demands by the regulations um, put forth in the late 90s and early 2000s, housing companies would just give loans to anybody to meet those laws requirements. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, I, I it, is, it is a situation where you let people loose to like do their own thing. But at the same time, they were meeting government demands on loans, and that created a huge catastrophe. Um, I don't think that they would have been selling really nice two-story homes to people who couldn't afford them um, if if they knew they weren't going to get paid by those people. But they had to under the law.
1: Well, yeah, maybe, but I, you know, I also think that you just like with credit cards, you know, credit card companies that they look for the people who you know, they, they can't pay
2: predatory uh, because
1: they know that <laughs> yeah. they'll get the money. They, they know they'll get the money and they know they'll get more money off someone who can't pay because they'll, they'll go after them. They'll go after their family members. They'll be able to charge them interest and penalty fees and all of this kind of stuff. So, you know, I, I mean, I think you've got a point there, but I think, uh, you know, corporations will always, will always see an in for, you know, how to make a little bit extra money. And, and that's totally fine. I mean, look, I you know, I'm a I'm a co-owner of a small business, so I understand. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I I understand you know that we're trying you know as a business you're trying to you're trying to make the ends meet. You're trying to make a little bit of a profit and 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 do okay for your company. And uh, it's just it's it's got to be about a balance. It's got to be a balance between the the company and the government and those two things working together and those two things working in tandem. And if there's overregulation, that's a bad thing. If there's under regulation, that's a bad
2: thing. I'm I'm a fan of balance. I mean, I think that that does strike the right note that we really want to hit. Um, you know, on this show, absolutism is bad. Yes. and and when <laughs> and when you when you absolutely are sure if everything that that you subscribe to is right and don't challenge those ideas and give things room to to grow in your mind, you sell yourself short. And you know, you were saying like with with liberalism there is no desire to nationalize commerce well with progressivism there is and these these are all sort of the same sides of the coin and with conservatism and free market values yeah i mean to a certain extent companies would be let loose to engage in whatever will make them a dollar unless someone stops them Um, and on the other side you know government will always look for a new way to tax you um and grow its size hire more people for the bureaucracy you know, these things, they push and they pull on each other, and it's its good. And I think we should always encourage, I, I personally, me, like lawmakers to make deals. Make compromise. Don't just spend all of your time with people who echo every value that you have. Make a deal. <laughs> that makes me sound like I'm making a Trump bup- bumper sticker, but <laughs> I make great deals. But, you know, com- com- compromise should be the, the way of the road, and... There is supposed to be balance in politics. There's supposed to be balance in the force. Well, I mean,
0: if we're talking, to bring it full circle here, with the author's intent, uh, George Lucas very clearly has an emphasis on balance. And Star Wars is a story that shows the dangers of progression in religion when it's taken too far, in politics when it's taken too far, and emotion when it's taken too far. So the emphasis on balance is, is a great point, because if you it's almost like this whole sense of if you look at it the right way Jedi are evil, you know, or if you look at it the right way, Sither. because if you take something too far, whether it be politically, religiously, whatever it is, it tends to progress to a place of destruction, demise, and ultimately no one's actually getting what they really need. But this pretty much brings us to the end of the conversation. Are there any final thoughts you guys wanted to share before we close out today?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I completely agree with what you guys are saying right here. Um, you know, as as Obi Wan says, unironically, but uh, only Sith deal in absolutes. I mean, but he's mm-hmm. dealing in an absolute. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's damn you, Obi Wan. <laughs> it's one of my favorite lines. It's it, it's a uh, you know I, I heard one person say it's it's like a koan. Yeah, uh, if you're familiar with this with this idea, which is that you can just think about this and and your your mind will just kind of wrap around it, and, and you'll never really get to get to the bottom of it. But I think it. I think it epitomizes, you know, kind of the conversation that we're having is that, you know, in politics, it's about winning games, it's about winning points, it's about saying I was right, and my opponent was wrong. And these are the values that I have, and that, that uh, and that, you know, my my people have, and that, that the country has, and my opponent over there, you know, believes that we should be drowning babies, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, it's just... The absolute worst in, in, you know, kicking mothers in the teeth or something, you know, like, the absolute worst thing. We're, we're in a, we're, government is not about, it's not a game. I mean, people's lives depend on the decisions that get made by this government. Uh, we should be working together, you know, if we have different ideas, if we have different philosophies, that's fine, but if we're so adamant on one side or the other, uh, then we're missing the opportunity to, to find a common ground anywhere. Anywhere. I mean, compromise is a dirty word in politics, and how screwed up is that? You know, how <laughs> screwed up is that? That our nation. You know, you say you want to make a compromise with the with the opposite side, and everybody comes down on you. I mean, K, uh, John Kasich. Uh, you know, went to the White House. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw this. Oh, I
2: I saw it. I I almost cried when he was in front of the White House sign because I went, John, you should have been there.
1: (laughs) Well, so for for anybody who didn't see this, you know, Kasich went to the White House and he he agreed with Obama about something. Uh, He went to the White House and, you know, wanted to work with the president on something that they both agreed on. And other Republicans were coming down on him for you know, meeting Obama halfway on something yeah. for, you know, and, and he and he stood there and I, I thought he gave a great uh, little speech about, you know, is this the government we want? Is this the government that is going to lead the people, a government where people can't come together and compromise and work together to achieve something? Or is it just going to be one side saying we're going to do it this way and another side we're going to do it this way? And we're not going to meet in the middle anywhere. We're just going to keep fighting each other until nothing ever gets done.
0: That, that's, that's a great point. And ultimately, this has been nothing short of an amazing conversation. This has been a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, this has been great. Um, oh, for me, too.
1: Thanks, guys. Yeah. Th-
0: thank you so much for being with us today. Um, b- before we close out, Mike, where, where can people find you online?
1: Yeah. Um, so I'm at, uh, at blog on Twitter, uh, or you can find me on Facebook. I write for RetroZap.com and also my personal blog, oconoblog.com. And, uh, and then, you know, come check us out on george.first.com. Uh, for all the listeners here, uh, we're going to do a little uh, little sale. We're going to do for the Beltway Banthas. So if you use code BELTWAY, all caps, uh, you get 10% off your order, and you get free shipping on, on two or more shirts. We've, got, we've right. got some fun campaign-themed shirts that we did around July 4th. We've got a Trump-themed one. We've got an Obama one. We've got a uh, you know Bernie Sanders parody one. So I think you listen. I think your listeners might kind of dig them if they if they go check them out. And even if they don't, just come say hi to us on Facebook. Say hi to us on Twitter at George Shot First. Uh, we just want to you know bring some respect and some appreciation uh, back to to George Lucas. We wouldn't be sitting here having this awesome conversation without the guy. Absolutely. Um, I think yeah. the least we can all do is just say hey, you know. We don't hate you, George. Like, <laughs> it's cool. You know, maybe there are some, some changes that you made that we didn't necessarily agree with, uh, some fixes that you made to things that maybe weren't broken, but we can all get behind at least, you know, saying, hey, George Lucas is a pretty cool dude.
0: Absolutely. Well, we hope we have the privilege of having you on again soon, Mike. Um, again, it was just a lot of fun and really hope we can do this again. Yeah, agreed. Uh, it right. would be an Thank honor. You. It was. It was a lot of fun for me, guys. Right. Well, thanks again for being on the show, man. Thanks, guys. Well, as usual, towards the end of the show, we have our segment Bantha For those of you who maybe are new to the show, Band the Fodder is the section of the show where Stephen and I take the time to discuss things that we're interested in, whether it be something that had happened prior in the week or just things that we want to share with you guys. So without further ado, this is the section of Bantha So Stephen... What's your bet the father, for the week?
2: Yeah, so I, for the first time, and, and first of all, there's a lot of stuff that I really want to talk about. Like the vice presidential debate was this week and uh, Donald Trump went off the rails about Miss Universe. And I mean, the discussion we had about Michael O'Connor has just had me so steeped in thought. But I do want to pivot back to just something a little bit more personal today. Um, I watched for the first four, time all the way through the chronicles of narnia um the lion the witch and the wardrobe movie that came it was, it was like a decade old now but you know the remake so this is the first time you've seen this movie uh no no it's uh i grew up on the books okay. and i i saw the original movie when i was in elementary school the really old kind of more grainy version of the movie and i just i always loved it i didn't like the reboot that they did um not it was not a reboot but like the first new trilogy of the movie mm-hmm. um, that they that they did a couple of years ago. And I guess I just was in this weird point in my life where I wasn't really into that kind of stuff. And I didn't like it. And I rewatched it for the first time with my five-year-old daughter, Sylvie. And she adored it. And I just sort of rediscovered my love of that story and my love of those characters and the conflict because a child is asking a lot of questions and, and you have answers. So like, there's that love of when... A little kid is asking you a, a question about like the meaning of life and you have to get answer that question and you kind of seem really smart and insightful and they they take something away from that but we had this great exchange that is going to stick with me for a while i hope about really what like unconditional and and, and parents love is all about but in the beginning of the story Uh, The kid's mother puts them on a train to shepherd them away from London during the bombings of World War II. Um, And she doesn't get on the train with them. She sends them away. And Sylvie looked at me and she said, why would she send her kids away? And I I said, because they were in danger there. There was a war. There was tons of stuff going on. She had to get them out of there. And she drew the connection immediately to Star Wars. Um, And she goes, oh, you mean like Anakin's mom? And I said, yeah, I mean, Mm -hmm. that's, that's pretty much it. I mean, and, and she had asked me about that in the Phantom Menace. Why did Anakin get sent away by his mom? It's not that she sent him away. It's that she loves him so much that she would never want him to stay there. And that's really a huge concept, especially for a five-year-old. Like the idea that the way that you could love somebody is to send them out of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was just a really cool conversation to have with her and I was just glad that I was able to rediscover The Chronicles of Narnia and The Lion the Witch and the Wardrobe in particular uh to have that conversation, make that connection with uh with my daughter and that's just kind of the the great thing about fantasy and these stories is it <laughs> it unlocks another level of for you to relate to other people and to your family. So, Tiersa, what about you? What's your benefit of fodder? Well, for
0: me, um, uh, there's just a lot of great things going on. Uh, one of the biggest things for me is my favorite artist of all time, Bon Iver. Released his new record um, on September 30th, uh, and I've just been absolutely in love with it. Justin Vernon, I guess you could call the, the captain of Bon Iver. Um, he, he's kind of been on this, this journey of self-discovery for about five years, just collaborating with different artists and and touring and playing with a bunch of different bands and you can hear that you can hear his experience you can hear the questions that he has about life um all in this album mixed together and it's, it, it, I listen to it, and, and it's the first time I've heard new bon Iver since, I mean, the first time I listened to him, which was years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for me, I have a very, it, it holds a special place in my heart just hearing something or seeing something for the first time. Like I've talked about a couple, you know, episodes ago about seeing the new Star Wars with my mom for the first time or, or, or experiencing those things. And it's very important to me. And uh, me, me and my fiance, Jillian, we, we kind of bonded over Bonnie Vare in this period of time where I was away and we could only write letters to each other. So a lot of times we would listen to Bonnie Vare as kind of this, This it's, it's a long story, but uh, we would listen to Bonnie Vare. She actually sent me a Bonnie Vare record because uh, my birthday was kind of in the middle of that. And I would just listen to that and think of her. So for us to listen to this new album together was just, it was an amazing feeling. Uh, I'm at work from like, Emma? Uh, from for Emma. Emma is the first record. Okay. Um, and this new record is titled 22 a million. It, it's definitely different. I mean, the, the biggest, the crux of, of Justin Vernon as an artist is that he never does the same thing twice. Even when he plays his songs live, they're always different. I'd rather be adding, you know, different instruments or just doing it in a complete different key or, or rhythm. Uh, He's always changing, so it it definitely inspired me. Uh, It's been a long time since I've been inspired by an entirety of an album, but... Uh, Jillian and I actually bought tickets to go see him in December, and it'll be the first time that we're going to see him live, which will be amazing. We're actually doing a whole lot more concerting, which is great. On a personal note, I've also been just working out more. Uh, I've been using this app called Fitness Pal, logging my calories and all this stuff. I got myself a Fitbit, you know, going on walks. So life has been fairly great for me. You know, just being able to work out, be healthy, and have great music to listen to, it's it's been a really good experience for me for the past couple weeks. That's awesome.
2: Awesome. That's awesome. <coughs> but that
0: but that brings us towards the end of our show today, guys. If you haven't already, remember to drop us a rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us out and gets the show out to more people. If you guys want to stay connected with the show, feel free to email us at beltwaybanthas at gmail.com, as well as on Twitter at BeltwayBanthas You guys can connect with me on Twitter and on Instagram at it's just Tirso, and you can also find me on my YouTube channel doing comedy at Tirso Perez. That's T-I-R-S-O-P-E-R-E-Z.
2: Stephen, where can people find you? Yeah, you can connect with me on Twitter at Stephen underscore Kent 89. That's S-T-E-P-H-E-N underscore Kent 89. Well, this has been another great episode of the Bowie
0: Banthus podcast. We want to thank you guys so much for listening. And as always, may the force be with you. Laugh it up, fuzzball.
1: I'll